and welcome back to the PPA podcast. I'm Sophia Cullinane and today I am joined by PPA's Resources Administrator, Mark Woolgar. Mark shares with us an incredible insight into the world of theatre and we can all learn so much from his life experience. But just before we dive into the episode, just to remind you that this has been recorded remotely via Zoom due to being in lockdown. So please bear with if there are any slight technical glitches. There is so, so much we can learn from Mark. So let's get straight into it and enjoy. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the PPA podcast. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) I can't wait to get chatting. So um, should we just jump straight in with a quick fire round? It'll be really fun just to get us started. Okay, so... Books or computers? Oh, books. <laughs> <laughs> Feel-good theatre or thought-provoking theatre? I think perhaps thought-provoking theatre. Yes. Tea or coffee? Depends on the time of day. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. Have a magic carpet that flies or the ability to be invisible? The ability to be invisible. Yeah, that would be an interesting experience, I think. Sweet or savoury? Savoury. And because you are our PPA librarian, fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. Nice. So that is our little quick fire round done. Right. Uh, we can start at the very beginning. So, Mark, I understand you didn't follow the typical route of going to drama school or university. So could you take us back to how you started out at the very beginning of your career? So I did go to university, but okay. I, didn't, I didn't read drama. I did go to university, but I didn't, as they say, read drama or theatre studies or I see. anything like that. I read English. And I was going to be a schoolmaster, and I was a schoolmaster for three years, but I was lucky enough to uh, start work in a secondary school, which was building up numbers slowly, so it had not got anybody entrenched directing school plays, and in fact I started them. So um, I did their first full-length plays, which was a, a French farce called An Italian Straw Hat, and uh, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, and a review and a short Moliere play. And then I applied for a trainee director scheme, which still exists, but under a different name, Mm. um, to be attached to a theater. And it was very, very competitive. Um, And we, we ended up being interviewed for the final interviews in half the ballroom of the Park Lane Hotel. Oh, wow. Um, and the people who were doing the interviewing sat at a table and on to their left and right coming down towards me were the representatives of the six theatres that were in the scheme that year. And then there seemed to be a lot of other people sitting around the edges who were just listening in. Anyway, to cut a long story short, mm-hmm. I was successful Yay. and I was assigned to the Bristol Old Vic Company. Oh, wow. I had never directed adults except once, I'm a operatic society, when I first directed professional actors. So I went to the Bristol Velvic, and uh, because I'd briefly been a schoolmaster, they put me in charge of developing their outreach and educational work, and um, which I did. 
But I also did 14 productions for them because they kept me on for another two years, which was quite usual. And that's how I started. Wow. So did you find that quite daunting then, just being thrown into the whole mix or was it exciting? Well, it was exciting, but it was also a bit daunting because, as I've said, I'd never directed adults before, let alone professional actors. Yeah. And the first play I directed was called The Day and the Death of Joe Egg by Peter Nichols, which was revived recently. Mm. Which Peter Nichols makes a fictional version um, of his deeply disabled son and the problems that arose from that. And he was still living in Bristol at the time. And the first anxiety I had was that he had perhaps offered the play to the Bristol Old Vic originally, and they turned it down. But I was assured by the Bristol Old Vic that that wasn't the case. Anyway, having the author of the play around as well, because he came into some rehearsals, and it had just been done in America, and he kept on saying things like, um, that bit isn't in, is it? Because he'd made some alterations for it in America. And the other sort of excitement was, this was 1968, now, censorship of plays, which had gone on since the 18th century, still applied until slightly later in 1968 than my production was going to be. Everybody knew censorship was going to end. And we had a copy of the script sent by the agent, and they had to put in it the alterations which the Lord Chamberlain required. And as I said to the manager of the Bristol of it, do we have to take any notice of these? Because, you know, you can go into a bookshop and buy the script and it's, it's, it's as the playwright wanted it. So he said, well, it's not the premiere, it's not the first production, so we'd probably get away with it. I don't want to know what you're doing. So we kept all these in and, of course, there wasn't any trouble. But they were ridiculous because we had two real children alternating as the child. They were about 10 or 11. And one of the things the Lord Chamberlain said in his rules, they must not be on the stage when this is said. Mm. Well, that wasn't too difficult, although I think we left them on. But the silly <laughs> thing was, of course, in the rehearsal room, they would hear all these things that they were not meant to hear. Yeah. And uh, the woman who was playing their mother was sitting with them, I noticed, at the side of the rehearsal room one day. And when we got to one of these lines, they roared with laughter. And she obviously said something to them. So I said to her after, what were they laughing at? Oh, well, she said they were laughing at that time. They had completely misunderstood. So, I mean, who was being protected, the audience or the children? It was all ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, and then another thing, because the play was really about his family, although fictional, he had a mother-in-law character. Um, and so when we, uh, the play was on, he invited the cast up to his house to have a meal. And both his mother and his mother-in-law were there. And he got the woman who was playing a sort of version of one or other of them to sit in between them and then stood behind them wickedly grinning as we all enjoyed the spectacle. Um, anyway, it was a wonderful play and he was actually very good because in my school's work, I'd set up these special days for schools, which was not so common then, very common now. And when the plays are more grown up, we used to do them in the morning, and then there'd be a question and answer session in the afternoon. And I said, was he willing to do that? He said, yes. And I knew he gets a very direct questions like, were you exploiting your child and all that sort of thing, which he did get, he dealt with it wonderfully. So it, was, um, it wasn't so much a baptism of fire, but it was certainly challenging. Yeah. Oh, I bet. It sounds like an incredible experience. 
was. And uh, the Bristol Vic was a very distinguished company. It's in a very good phase now. In fact, at that time, it was one of only four companies that were allowed to say they operated in association with the Arts Council. They weren't the only theatres who had a grant from the Arts Council, but that was meant to make sure they were special. Um, and of course, they had very good actors, very experienced actors. Mm. I was inexperienced in directing adults. And although nobody was ever difficult, I'm sure they must have carried me sometimes, but nobody was ever at all difficult. Mm. But I used to spend a lot of time working out, you know, what they could do with props and things, which is what you have to do when you've been directing school kids. Mm. And, um, what I, one actor just said to me in a kindly way one day, you needn't bother about the props, Mark, we'll work there. <laughs> I then realised that the only thing that um, actors, perhaps what directors to say about props in a certain kind of play, particularly early in the rehearsals, is to say something like, don't forget you've got to go out in a moment, exit in a moment, which is the sort of thing they, when they've got a book in their hands, they're still not off book and they're holding a glass in the other, a glass of a drink, say, it may not immediately occur to them that they've got to exit in a minute and they don't want to be exiting with that glass. So <laughs> that's all you need to say. And then any actor with any experience will work out what to do with the glass, mm. when to put it down. So um, that was something they said. And another thing which uh, happened, um, obviously you don't arrange the curtain call until quite late on. Yeah. And, uh, as you know, it's always called the call, the curtain call. Mm -hmm. But I, for some reason, used to say, well, we'll do the bow now. And nobody ever said anything uh -huh. until about my third production with an actor who'd worked with me before. And they were laughing, and I, what are you laughing at? And they said, Michael said you were going to say that, and we were waiting <laughs> for it. So, and also, I was so green about the professional theatre, I didn't know what they meant by the half, which, of course, as you know, is actually 35 minutes before the performance is meant to start. But I didn't know that either. But in a sense, there's no reason why I should, because yeah, I'd had exactly. nothing to do with the professional theatre. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, it's often said a director is as good as his cast, and a cast is as good as a director. Um, and there is some truth in that. I think perhaps a more important truth is that if you have actually cast the play, uh, which means you met all the actors beforehand and decided to engage them, that is an advantage. Though it's a disadvantage if you've made a mistake and got the wrong actor. But So I've done a lot of that when I was running a theatre, but I've also been in situations where I was a guest director and I didn't know any of the cast mm. until we met at the at the first rehearsal. So I think getting the casting right is actually rather important. And uh, if you have the casting, um, it may be trickier, but it's not always the case. Sometimes it's a nice surprise. So how did you find just jumping straight into directing? Did you find that it was something that came quite naturally to you? Well, well that's really a variation on the, on the question one is often asked. Um, how do you train a director? Yeah, that's very um, true. And there are schemes now, there are courses where you can train to be a director, but the problem with those is who are you given to direct? And mm. there have been theatre schools who run directing courses and you direct the other students. I don't think that's really fair on either party because as I've said, it's not the same as directing professional actors, all of the correct age, whereas students inevitably will tend to be young. And then sometimes where that has happened, you do get a professional cast at the end. 
but it's not usually in a play with a very large cast for financial reasons. Mm. So it's not an easy answer. It's also created by some actors become directors. And some actors like being directed by people who are also actors because they sort of understand actors. On the other hand, there is a, <laughs> they may feel, well, the actor's directed me, how he or she would like to act it if they were, if they were playing it. Yeah. So, I mean, the simple answer is, as with a lot of things, you really only learn by doing it. Yeah. Um, and it's very tricky. Um, there isn't a hard and fast rule. And if I was running a directing course, it would have another, some boring sounding modules that are actually remarkably important, like, for instance, how to organize a rehearsal schedule. Mm. Because um, it, one of the difference between amateurs and professionals is amateurs are often prepared to go on as long as it takes and they enjoy it. Professionals are up to a point, but they also have rules of engagement, you know, that you're only meant to work for so many hours and you're meant to have a break between the end of rehearsals and the start of the performance, all of which is a good thing, really. Though often you gone the fridge, I warn you. Um, so, and then also they have to have time off. And uh, if you're not careful, a wardrobe department might say, oh, he's not rehearsing on Thursday afternoon, we can give him a wardrobe call. But actually, in fact, that would break rules because it's meant to be an afternoon off. So that sort of thing does affect the whole rehearsal period. And furthermore, um, you probably only got two and a half weeks or three weeks of rehearsal in England anyway. And it does require working out in advance. And I think that's quite a useful skill. If you get the rehearsal schedule right, uh, the whole thing is likely to go more smoothly. It's not as easy as it looks. But... And don't fall asleep in re when rehearsing. <laughs> once, I once nodded off. Within, oh, no. Yes, within, within inches of an actress who's done very well for herself since. Luckily, it wasn't for long. But there was an occasion when I really wasn't very well, and that was known. And we were doing a run of a play called Arms and the Man. And when it finished, I gave notes. And as I gave the notes, I, sound, I thought these notes sound very familiar. But actually, they were the notes from the previous run-through, and I had, in fact, dozed off because I wasn't very well. Nobody said anything. This oh. only came out years later when somebody said, yes, you fell asleep. We all know you fall asleep. But um, you were not well, and so we didn't say anything. Oh. So there are hazards. <laughs> yeah, funny. Well, there is another thing, uh, which sometimes you get actors who don't agree with something, which is absolutely fine. We don't want them to be puppets. And I was directing a play with a young actor and he had a scene with two much older actors, an actor and actress. And it was a very commercial play, but very successful in its day. And he suddenly said, but he wouldn't say that, would he, about his character? So my eyes flicked to the, the two older actors looking slightly amused in mind. So I said, no, well, actually, I rather agree with you. Uh, as you know, this playwright is uh, late middle-aged, and I don't think he knows very much about young people, and it's not actually terribly well-written. I grant you all that. But I can also tell you that because it's a certain kind of commercial comedy, the sort of people who like this comedy will find that line very funny. Yeah. And, um, I, and I did something I very rarely had to do. I said, I think if you say it like this, and I said it, you will find it, it gets a laugh. Well, of course, one of the unwritten rules in rehearsal, it's very unwise to discuss what might get a laugh. Mm. You can see actors thinking, hmm, 
that would probably get a laugh and I'm quite a good physical position if there's a pause there. Anyway, um, so he didn't complain and he, he said the line. When it came to the first night, of course, I sat there thinking now it's going to be a disaster because he doesn't really understand this kind of play, but let's see what happens. Um, anyway, he said the line more or less as I told him to and it did get a very big laugh. That's good. <laughs> but I did notice when I went to subsequent performances that he went to a lot of trouble to make sure he still got his laugh. So <laughs> he'd learnt something. You have to know what kind of play you're in. Now I can tell you, because it doesn't exist anymore, he was trained at Drama Centre. Ah, okay. Yes, there are some people who might listen to this who will know what I mean by that. Yeah. Okay. So what would you say has been one of the main things that you've learnt over your journey directing all these plays? About directing or about people, people, actors and plays? Yeah, about directing, about working with other people. I think, and this is where my remark about um, rehearsal schedules came in, what actors really want is to feel that the framework within which they're rehearsing is encouraging and not a straitjacket, and yet they can know that somebody is keeping the end in view. Mm. If you're rehearsing a very long play, an old-fashioned play with three acts, we'll say, let alone five acts, sometimes they will realise they haven't actually rerun the first act for three or four days because they've been busy doing act two and act three. Yeah. So somebody, and this is where the rehearsal schedule comes in, needs to have provided a framework where they already know that they will be going back to Act One in 24 hours time. This affects all sorts of things, like when people get off the book, when they may get together away from rehearsal to work on a scene. Um, and also somebody, and it can really only be the director, needs to keep an eye on the overall rhythm of the play and the production so that the thing doesn't trudge through terribly slowly. I remember once at the RSC seeing a production of a play I knew quite well, and it was terribly slow. Every scene was so slow. I found it quite interesting because I knew the play and see what they were discovering and exploring, but it was very much a trudge. So when I went round to see a friend afterwards who was in it, I, I said that was my sort of feeling about it. And he said, yes, I know what you mean. I said, as a matter of interest, how many run-throughs did you have of the whole play before it opened? He said, one. Oh, wow. Well, the RSC has a longer rehearsal period than most, although it's not as long as it might appear to be, because if people are in plays in the evening, which are always long plays at Stratford, it actually cuts down rehearsal time. But uh, I thought that was interesting. The reason it was all slow, and there are very few plays which should be all slow, mm -hmm. if the writer is good, well, then you're only going to get the rhythm right if somebody's keeping a check on that, and gets in as many run-throughs or run-throughs of each act while doing a later one as you can. Otherwise, it may be very interesting to people who already know the play, but it's not necessarily going to be very exciting for the audience. And also, probably not very faithful to what the author intended. Because very few playwrights would write plays that were incredibly slow all the way through. Yeah, and essentially the, the purpose of theatre is to connect to the audience, so you definitely want it to connect with them and for them to enjoy it. 
Yeah, well, that's another thing, actually, which I think is very important. I think a lot of inexperienced directors uh, actually forget that ultimately, if it's live theatre, it's for an audience. Mm. And uh, that's another responsibility a director has. He, has a res he or she has a responsibility to the playwright, perhaps particularly if the playwright is dead in a fun sort of way, and has a responsibility to the audience. So that, for instance, um, at the beginning of a lot of plays, and it's sometimes, if it's well written, you won't be terribly aware of this consciously, um, quite a lot of important information has been got over to the audience in order that they can understand what's going on. Now, in a funny sort of way, actors don't find that the most interesting bit of the play. Um, and so if you're not careful, as a, as a um, they start to speed up or skate over or not do as careful as they might at the beginning. And so you have to remind them they've got to tell the story. And another duty a director has, I think, if they go back on various occasions to watch their production, is get in a position where you can watch the audience. Because audiences vary. If it's a comedy, they don't always laugh at the same things. Mm. And if the audience is older, as can sometimes happen at a matinee, uh, they don't necessarily laugh out loud as much, but you can see them smiling quite happily. Yeah. So you have to, um, you know, reassure the cast. The other thing which has happened, I think, on every comedy I've ever worked on, um, although one isn't meant to discuss this, one may think, or it may have happened at the reading when the cast laughs, that that's, that is the first laugh, you think. Yeah. And so you come to the first performance, and it's not the first laugh. The audience chooses to laugh, usually slightly before that moment, which takes everybody by surprise, including the cast. The irritating thing is, because audience psychology is very odd, having laughed at the wrong line, so to speak, because they don't know what's coming next, they don't laugh at the line you all thought would be the one they would laugh at. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when the cast say, I don't, why do they laugh at that? So I would say, well, let's wait and see what happens at the second performance or the third performance. And very often the same thing happens. And it's a peculiar thing of audience psychology. They've decided they, they, they understand roughly what's going on by now. And they, they're enjoying it. And they sort of have a psychological collective need to laugh. So they seize on the first thing that they feel allows them to laugh, although it's not actually the oh, funniest wow. line. It's very weird. That. Yeah, that's so uh, interesting. And after time, you realise where the consistent laughs are in a play. And then there are other occasional laughs, which may depend on the nature of the audience. And then you get another big problem. If you get somebody in the audience who, for various reasons, is a loud laugher and laughs a lot, because then the audience starts to laugh at them, or alternatively get irritated at them. So um, that's the sort of thing a director cannot control. It's not their business to control it. But they may need to give notes to the cast in the light of what the audience is actually doing, though any cast with any experience will make their own adjustments. But it's fatal for people to go around in rehearsal saying that'll be a laugh. And I once directed a play um, where there was a long duologue between an elderly actress who I did know quite well and a, a very experienced middle-aged actor who also directed sometimes, who I didn't know, but had a very good reputation. And slightly to my surprise, he kept on saying in rehearsal, that'll be a laugh. And Marjorie, the older actress I knew, didn't say anything. And I didn't say anything because, you know, it's an unwise thing to say. Anyway, what happened in performance, of course, consistently was 
there were some laughs in the sea, but she got all of them and he never got any of them. <sighs> and that wasn't because, because she was doing anything wrong. Yes. It was just that he had completely misjudged the scene. I mean, he, I didn't say anything and he didn't say anything. But I thought, well, if you want an object lesson, you don't go around saying that'll be a laugh. There you've got it. <laughs> no, exactly. If people take one thing from this podcast, don't go around saying that this will be a laugh. Yes, well, it's very weird all that, because if you're doing a comedy, if you have any experience at all, mm. you must think many times, well, that'll be a laugh. But I've never heard actors, with that one exception, say that, at least not during the rehearsal. Um, you, you can see them, as I think I said earlier, obviously thinking, now, if that's going to be a big laugh, am I in a bad physical position to, as it were, freeze while they laugh? Mm. Um, but it's ultimately, it has to be a provisional decision in your own mind that that'll be a laugh. And then you have to judge from the early audiences. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say a very important responsibility of a director, and it doesn't have to be just comedies, is the audience. And that's why I've never been attracted to or never made any attempt to get involved with film. Yeah. Because I like a live audience. And there are obvious all drawbacks with film, even comedies. Um, and that's why I've never much liked comedy shows on television where, not always, but you know the audience is being primed to laugh. Yeah. So to speak. It's not all genuine, let alone on radio when you have that dubbed in laughter, which is <laughs> completely unnatural. Have you ever heard laughter finish stop dead like that? Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't really like all that. So yeah. I was never tempted to go away from live theatre. Yeah, I think that's the magic of live theatre is the live audience. And yes, there is a difference with musicals. Uh, musicals that I suppose might now be regarded as old-fashioned, but not entirely. In musicals, very often the way numbers end, if there wasn't applause, it would, it would look very peculiar. That's true. Um, and so there's a lot of that in the older musicals built in, so to speak. Yeah. Um, which which uh, usually works because if it's properly staged and choreographed and everything else, it happens automatically. But um, slightly different in, in musicals where they're almost entirely sung through. In fact, they don't really want applause very often because it ruins the flow. Mm. But in old-fashioned musicals with, with what I call a big finish, yeah. Um, you know you haven't got a great success on your hands if there's no applause because if you're doing it properly it'll happen automatically. Yeah, no that's very true actually, I've never thought about that. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about audience psychology because I've never, I've never really thought of that concept but I think that's something that's really important as a director. Well it's also, I mean because of the lockdown that's going on at the moment uh, and, and people being worried about what will happen to live theatre, will audiences be willing to come back, and will there be social distancing, etc, etc, etc. There's a sort of feeling at the moment that audiences will come back. In fact, there was a very good article on the stage website this week by a man who is a playwright, but also runs the Edinburgh Lyceum Theatre, saying they will come back because they want the social experience you know, being there with a lot of other people, even if you've gone on your own, it's a totally different experience from um, watching it online, you'll say. Um, 
And then there's the whole question, he says it rather good things in his, his article about, you know, they want the drink beforehand and they want the lights to go down and they want to discuss yeah. it in the interval, which we don't really think about if, if theatre is happening normally. Um, and I think people probably will go back. I mean, unfortunately, some audiences have become rather silly. One of the things that drives me mad is the automatic standing ovations now. Mm. Uh, it particularly happens at musicals and particularly when there are a lot of tourists in and dare one say it, a lot of Americans, they <laughs> leap to their feet. Well, it's lovely and I'm glad they do in a way, but I can remember when a standing ovation was very, very rare. Yeah. And it really happened when an audience had been totally swept away, off their feet as the saying is. Mm -hmm. And um, now it's sort of automatic and rather stupid. So you sometimes see people near the front doing it by accident <laughs> before it's actually finished. They have to sit down again. Oh, and then no. there's this awful clapping above their heads, which yeah. of course if they're near enough to the stage, the actors can't help but see. And so they sort of smile at them and that <laughs> makes it worse. I dislike it because although a lot of stuff is very good, mm. if you've really been present when there was an instant standing ovation, you know, nobody thought twice about it, it just couldn't help themselves, well, yeah. then you're not very impressed by these sort of automatic standing ovations. And the trouble is then they're not really standing ovations because some people at the front do it, and then other people stand up behind them either because they think they ought to or because they can't see the actors taking their curtain call. And I call it a sort of crouching standing ovation. But it's totally yeah. and extremely irritating, and I don't think most performers are taken <laughs> in by it. <laughs> That's very true. It's it's the moment where you think, oh, they're standing up, so should I stand up as well? Well, actually, actually, the splendid shows that were done at PPA last term and were streamed and had supportive fellow students present. Mm -hmm. I mean, they stood up, but that does happen at drama schools and actually it's rather nice and rather supportive. Yeah, supportive. And uh, even though privately they may think, well, it wasn't as good as our show. <laughs> it's, it's a nice collective response, but that's a different kind of standing ovation. Yeah. Um, because the audience is not a natural one, it's all your peers. And so yeah, you can expect them to behave in a, in a certain kind of way. That's quite nice. But uh, these sort of automatic standing ovations for a lot of Western musicals or half standing ovations are just a bit irritating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do agree there, actually. It's something I've never thought about. But as you said it, yeah. Perhaps you don't join in them, so you haven't thought about it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So have you ever worked um, on musicals or have you mainly... Yes, I've done some musicals, but remember... If you're based, um, I've done Kiss Me Kate and My Fair Lady and Cow Custard and the Boyfriend to others, but I always relied very heavily on the choreographer. Mm. And uh, with one or two of those, I did the dialogue rehearsals only in the second half of the rehearsal period. I choreographer did all his or her stuff first. Uh, you might say, well, how could they do that if they didn't really know how it led out of the dialogue or whatever it might be? But obviously we discussed that and then there could be a little tidying up later on. But um, I think most directors anyway who are doing musicals rely very heavily on the choreographer and the musical director. Yeah. Um, uh, because I won't say it's all about their work, but um, it is... Uh, important that they have enough time. In the same way there are plays like Romeo and Juliet for instance where you have to allow the fight director a lot of time. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so it must get even more complicated now when there are intimacy directors and all sorts of other things oh, on, yes. on very well staffed productions. And um, that, of course, sends me right back to the rehearsal. So that uh, a director of the musical, I think, probably has a particular responsibility to keep an eye on every, every department. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's quite difficult. And yeah. that's why there are plenty of legendary stories about musicals, their openings being delayed, or in the case of many American musicals, which toured quite a lot before they reached Broadway, you know, directors being sacked and numbers being taken out and numbers put in. Um, it's a very, very complicated performance, musicals, but um, a challenge and great fun to do, of course. Mm. Now, I don't think I would ever choose to open a theatre, which is what I did do, first oh, production really? new theatre, with My Fair Lady, because that was a little bit fraught, but we got away with it. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, in fact, um, the theatre was so new that they were still knocking seats into position uh, during the technical rehearsal. Oh, and then the orchestra pit, which had been built with a lift, so it could also be a four stage, resolutely refused to come up. So the musicians were far too down deep in the pit. Oh, so no. the whole of the play of the first night was spent running around Derby, because it was a Derby playhouse, Derby Theatre now, getting roster and all sorts of things from the town council and everybody to build up a sufficient platform in the pit for the musicians to be in a good position in relation to the stage, which we did do just in time. So I think that was a bit overambitious. Um, the Leicester Haymarket, which is no more, um, had opened, um, they did two more straightforward productions before they had the official grand opening, when they did do a musical, if I remember rightly, but it wasn't actually the first production. So I th think I would never do that again. It was a bit hair-raising, yeah. although we got a word of it. Get me to the church on time. It was an appropriate number, ah, <laughs> given the show. Yeah, it sounded like you had to not just be a director, but you had to organize everything else as well. As a extent a director has to do that and of course yeah. now and my heart bleeds for them uh, anybody who wants to be a director will go through a huge process of being an assistant director mm. um in my day if you were lucky you got a lot of productions in a regional theater or a rep as they were called without going all over that long saga everybody goes on about but now if you look at the biographies of fairly young directors they're probably in their 30s who've now got a, a big chance and you look at what they've done most of the time it's been assistant directing or they've created their own work on the fringe which yeah. is fine but um it means you have to do all the dog's body jobs which if you're the only director as you would have been in a rep most of the time um you had to do you know like um, rehearsal scheduling or um, research. I mean, I think directors need to do a lot of research, but they can farm some of that out to the assistant directors. Writing the programme notes, which will probably be written by somebody completely different now, yeah. watch that, because critics read the programme notes, and so do sometimes the audience. And because these are written, obviously, a few days before it opens, because of print schedule, you have to be very careful because um, a critic reads and says oh that's what the director thinks and they think well he or she didn't do that in the production possibly because they changed their mind quite creatively <laughs> so I would always insist on writing my own notes and I was a bit careful about what I said because yeah. my mind might change and uh, uh, so you have to be careful and I think that the, the, the very big theatres like the National and the RSC mm -hmm. 
you probably have, and, and after all, the directors of those theatres tend to write their memoirs or publish their diaries or something, certainly at the National. And uh, it's a pretty difficult job because it's such a huge staff. And one thing I did learn from the Bristol Ovic, which was quite well staffed by standards of regional theatres, you do, people do like to be kept informed. Mm. And I'm sorry to go on about rehearsal schedules again, but the director <laughs> of Bristol Ovic, when I was there, did something which was fairly normal practice. He never put up the rehearsal schedule for the next day until about seven o'clock in the evening. Which ah. meant that if the people rehearsing the next day were not that evening's production, they had to phone in or hang about or something. Mm. And um, I used to put up my schedules even then for two or three days ahead. And there are people who would say, well, that doesn't allow much flexibility. Um, and they th I thought they'd all think, well, he's been a schoolmaster, so he's a bit sort of timetable. But um, one actor once said to me with a smile, he said, it's wonderful, Mark. We know when we can go to the laundrette. Remember all ah. these people living away from home. But the other thing I found about a, a rehearsal schedule is that you then have to stick to it. Mm. Because if, you've, if you put it up for three days and you're working on a scene and it's down from three o'clock to 3.45 and you get to 3.40 and really both you and the people in the rehearsal would like to go on a bit longer. The thing that saves it all is if you go on in fairness to the people who are called for 3.45 but the people who would like to have gone on with their call a bit longer already know that it's coming back the day after tomorrow for 45 minutes. If they're sensible, they can prepare, they can get off the book, they can go away and work together, away from the formal rehearsals. And that's how it works. Yeah. In the same way, I'm not that keen on having the entire cast sitting in the rehearsal room the whole time. Mm. It does sometimes happen, but I don't think that's a very good idea. You might have them in sometimes, particularly if there's a run-through of an act, of course they will be there. But I, I think it's asking an awful lot of concentration. There are other interesting and useful things they could be doing. And it perhaps might work with the tiny cast who are likely to be heavily involved in the play anyway, but otherwise I don't think it's a good idea. There are even sometimes productions where the whole cast sits aside, visible to the audience and then gets up and does their bit. I've seen that work, but I've also seen where it was dead obvious to anybody that the people sitting around were bored off their heads. I bet. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't have been the only member of the audience who noticed that. Yeah. So you have to be careful about that. Yeah, that's a hard thing to ask someone to do, sit on the edge of the theatre and watch the same yeah. production that they've probably yeah. seen. It's slightly different again with musicals because, yeah. because of second casts and swings and all that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. then that's actually hard work and it's also challenging work because if that's your best hope as an understudy or swing or anything else, to find out what really goes on and hear what the director and the choreographer originally said, well then, my goodness, you want to be there. Yeah. And if you go to long-running plays or musicals and you look up at the boxes, which are often not sold, near the slip cross arch, mm -hmm. and you think, I bet those, those are understudies or swings watching. To I see think that's what it is, yes. I reckon. But, uh, but it, it's um, a really challenging situation to be in anyway, and they ought to be better paid. Mm -hmm. But I think it's great that PPA, though it's not peculiar to PPA, do the swing project with musicals. Yeah which is um, absolutely vital, particularly with so many musicals now being so long running. Yeah. Um, uh, we needn't name them, but we all know them. And uh, it's a very important stepping stone. Mm. And so, you know, the famous musical where 
that you understand is 42nd Street, isn't it, is flung on and becomes a star overnight. Yeah. Well, that sort of thing can happen. Not yeah. necessarily come, quite becoming a star, but there was the famous case, wasn't there, only two or three years ago, of somebody who'd been in Mamma Mia, but hadn't been in it for two years, and she was understudying in some other show, and they had a crisis at Mamma Mia, and they got through, because the company managers knew each other, and said, is, is, would so-and-so do it? And so she rescued the play. She hadn't wow. been in for two years, like that. That's <laughs> quite a challenge. Yes, well, it actually happened. So um, yeah. uh, you, you never know. So in those sort of situations, during the original rehearsals, if you're lucky enough to be employed at that time, well, then you do want everybody there. Mm. And they would want to be there for obvious reasons. But it's a bit yeah. different in a play, yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Right, fine. It's been incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've got such a depth of knowledge into the industry and you've got so well, much. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I first went to the West End Theatre in 1951, remember? Oh, wow. And Yvonne Arno, after whom the theatre is named in Guildford, was mm. in the cast. Oh. And it was, a it was a totally different world, no fringe theatre, no off West End. The national anthem or part of it was played before each performance. In some theatres, you could get afternoon tea served in your seat as a matinee. The star of the show usually received an entrance round of applause as he or she came on, though they didn't take any notice of it. Oh. And uh, it was a very different theatre world. The rate of change has been enormous. Gosh, wow. I feel like we need another episode. We need a part oh, well. two. Because there's I, so I'm much. very expensive, but we could try. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much, so much to cover. But thank you so much. That's all right. Shall we end quickly with, can you give me a few words of wisdom that you would like to share with everyone? Well, under the current circumstances, and I'm not talking about the pandemic, mm. I'm talking about the way the business is going, and it's not a very original comment, always think about how you could make your own work. Mm. Work on a one-man or a one-woman show, or get together with friends, and also never forget that uh, it's not new that you won't be able to do your acting stuff all the time. There will be gaps. They may be bigger than in the old days, but that's not to make mean there's anything the matter with you. And that is really the pattern now. You've got to make your own work. It may not always be theatrical work. And the other thing I would say, remember there are lots of showbiz related things that um, are fun and interesting to do, um, event management and things like that. Yeah. And um, if you're clever, you could, mix those in with doing what you think you wanted to do when you were 18 but are probably now realizing even if you're successful you will still have gaps and you've got to learn how to fill those that's part of the game now amazing i okay. think that's amazing advice and always have a schedule <laughs> absolutely yes schedules work it has been in your hand. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah right, it's been fun talking to you Thank you very, very much. Okay, bye. So just to end, I've kept a small clip from recording with Mark in at the very end because it was a moment that really made me smile. And I think we all need a bit of laughter in life sometimes, so I hope this makes you smile. I didn't read drama. Oh, okay. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got to rid of this phone call. It's Hello, okay. I'm in the middle of a Zoom call. Try again. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably trying to sell double glazing anyway. Yes, oh. so...